So Christian, you were saying when, uh, before we started recording that you uh, you just watched this movie, like without even knowing that you're going to be coming on our podcast, but you recently watched the movie for a specific reason. And what was that reason? So, and, and first off, guys, uh, I'm sorry that I was almost late to the podcast. Yeah. Traffic was a bitch. Oh. Uh, but yeah, I just watched nice. the player again recently and uh, I watched it like in early March. So I was just promoted at IndieWire from managing editor to, to executive managing editor. And uh, the night that we were able to announce the promotion, finally, I was trying to think, I want to watch something that's about Hollywood. That's about the industry that I've kind of dedicated myself to. And what better movie to watch than the player? And so like, literally the movie that I watched to celebrate this promotion was the player. And, it's it's uh, some like American psycho, like psychopathic shit. <laughs> you're like, I'm making it in Hollywood. Just like the player. That's me, baby. I'm going to go out and murder somebody. <laughs> I mean, Christian, did you, did you murder somebody to get your promotion? I mean, I, I, like I, I did. I did not. I did not. But of course that's what, you know, a murderer would say in this situation, but uh, no, it just seemed like kind of the perfect movie because it it's, it's a movie to watch to sort of keep it real about Hollywood and about like, you know, this industry can be really dark and can be really brutal. And, you know, I obviously love it because I've dedicated my career to it in many ways, but it's also, you know, it's important to always remain skeptical about it and, uh, you know, see it for what it is. I, I, I want to introduce the film, but I also agree with you. And I want to say that I love it even not just as a movie about Hollywood, but I think it's a movie about American industry as a whole or different types of entertainment and content industry. Mm-hmm. I think you could take a lot of the executive meetings and the way that they function and apply them to new media oh or God. apply them to, yeah. to television, you know, like, uh, without going too deep into it, but like the scene with Larry Lee, Larry Levy, where he's like, Oh, grab the newspaper. We can just start, you know, pitching movies based off of things from the newspaper and there's no writers. It's like, and there, you know, there's a couple people in that room being like, what a fucking brilliant idea. This guy's amazing. He's going to revolution. He's going to disrupt the industry. He's going to disrupt it. You know, I feel like as a person who worked in new media for like 12 years, I sat in so many meetings where some new executive came in and was like spouting the most ridiculous shit. And all the top level executives were like, wow, he's, he's on to something new here. This is crazy. And I want, and like, I didn't have the place to step up and be like, guys, he's just pitching you a reality show from 10 years ago. Like he's not dude like that. That was a thing that was on VH1 10 years ago. What do you want me to say right now? I feel like, yeah, especially new media journalism in general has a lot of parallels to yeah. Hollywood just in terms of, because you, you have to come up with stories as well. You have to come up with content, so to speak. And, you know, this is a movie that in which the word content was not used, you know, 30 years ago, the way that it is now the word disruption had not been thought of in that regard at all, but it's the exact same principles. You're so right. Like uh, there's just an obsession in um, the American business world with anything that's bright and shiny and new. And ultimately what's, what's interesting about this is that it's a jaundiced view of, of, you know, American business of Hollywood specifically but it's a jaundiced view of how people can be so easily seduced by 
just these things that are bright and shiny and new and and are so uncritical about them and in that regard i think we've gotten so much worse in the past oh, oh yeah i would 100%. i would agree i would say yeah, yeah it's a it was a jaundiced view 30 years ago 30 years later it's like rose colored glasses looking at the fucking oh thing where it's like wow they're actually reading the scripts and talking about the idea the pitches for the movies and like Wait. accepting new pitches that are not just old ip this is insane they're paying lip service to the idea that film is art. Like, how respectful of them. That's really nice. I mean, one of the executives, you know, what it knows about the bicycle thief and, you know, cares about neorealism and actually can speak to that a little bit. Yeah. I don't know if that would happen today as much. Uh, hey, I mean, but no, it would be like, it'd be like Zach, you know, Zack Snyder was on the lot the other day. Yeah, really Whoa. nice guy. Came by, shook my hand. He's a great guy. Great guy. We love Zach. Sin here. City, that's like that's 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 my movie. You know, that's what really got me interested in, in this in Right. This where movie. where were you where were you when you saw American Pie? Do you know what that did at the box office? I'm like, oh God. I know I was making fun of you for this earlier, but I did watch it and think like I should be more like this at work. <laughs> 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 From director Robert Altman comes a story yeah. of Hollywood. I got a writer in here who's got a pitch I think you ought to hear. I think it's hot. We open outside San Quentin. The Graduate, part two. And Mrs. Robinson had a stroke, so she can't talk. It's going to be funny? Yeah, it'll be funny. Griffin Mill is a hotshot studio executive. Yes. Angelica, hi. Griffin Mill. Oh, hi. Good to see you. Malcolm McDowell. Hi, how are you? Hi, Bert. He's heard every pitch. Yes, exactly right. It's out of Africa meets Pretty Woman. He knows all the angles. We're gonna have to have a little sex in this mystery. Okay, sure, of course, we'll get it. Slowly pushes her panties down to her knees. And all the players. We're the stars. No stars. No stars. Bruce Willis. I want Bruce Willis. Not Bruce Willis. No Schwarzenegger. Julia Roberts. Now he's about to star. How did this get here? They're coming from a writer. Hello, is David Cahane there, please? This is. This is Griffin Mill. Oh, the dead man. In his most unforgettable story yet. Stop all the postcards. I don't like postcards. I want This is a tough story, a tragedy. Not unlike Ghost meets Manchurian Candidate. The trouble is something you have to know. If you want to pass it in with intent to kill, you can go to the gas chamber. It's not a movie. I'd like you to come down to the station. I would hate to get the wrong person arrested. Oh, please. This is Pasadena. We do not arrest the wrong person. That's L.A. It's his life. Are you seeing someone else? Oh, you took her to a party, Griffin, with several hundred of my best friends. Do places like this really exist? Only in movies. Robert Altman's The Player. Uh, welcome to 30 Years Later. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Ricky Camilleri, the uh, other host who will probably edit out his failure to do the introduction. A total <laughs> collapsing bomb uh, is here as well. Chris, yeah. say hi. Okay, hello, Ricky. Uh, okay, uh, <laughs> look, I, and if I could just disagree with you right at the start of the show, what I was trying to do was to just, just an like, abysmal failure. Abysmal I was just failure. trying to continue chit-chatting, and I was actually going to ask Christian about the, the exact same question you asked him, and I was like, great, we can just chit-chat about that. But then it did start feeling like the show somehow, and less like chit-chatting. So, yeah, you're right, it did end up as a failure. But if I could just explain it in that way, you know? <laughs> 
Hey, but Chris, baby, we love you anyway. Uh, so great to be here. So great to see you, man. No. Uh, well, I was going to say we're so lucky to be joined this week by uh, my good friend and former co-worker, the executive managing editor of IndieWire. It's Christian Bloveld. Uh, Christian. Christian. So good to be here. Seriously. I can't believe it's been like almost four years, Chris, since you and I worked together. That's so crazy. That doesn't seem like that's possible at all. Uh, Christian, this is round two for you with us. Uh, your last film with us was either more than a year or less than a year ago when we did Home Alone. It was more than a year ago. Yeah, I think it was November okay. uh, 2020. 2020. Yeah. Whoa. Wow. Joining the okay. rare breed of two timers on the show, and we really right. appreciate it very much, Christian. Uh, it's so great to have you on the show today. Yeah, to talk about like I, your I would. I would like to clarify, not rare breed because uh, people say no, rare breed because we fail to ask people a second <laughs> yes, time. Yes, that is true. You, you are the first that we've asked and you have said yes. Wow. Yeah. Well, that is an honor. And I certainly hope that a third time will be in the offing oh, wow. for Gosh. Home Alone oh. 2, Lost in New York, the 30th anniversary of which will be this fall. Oh, play, your wow. cards, play your cards right, and we'll see. Let's see how it goes today. <laughs> um, so today we're talking about Robert Altman's return to Hollywood. As they say, his, uh, I'm sure when, uh, he, when it was released, all the critics said he's back in, back in rare form. Um, it's The Player, released in, on April 10th, 1992, directed by Robert Altman, written by Michael Tolkien, based on his book, and starring Tim Robbins as the player, the Hollywood player, the executive. Uh, Greta Scacchi, Fred Ward, Whoopi Goldberg, Peter Gallagher, and my favorite, Cynthia Stevenson, who I think, uh, for my money, gives the uh, the most heartbreaking, hilarious performance in uh, in the movie. She's um, playing Bonnie, right? That that's she's she's Bonnie. Yeah. 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 Uh, the film is a. Uh, I guess we can briefly just go over the plot of it. The film is a thriller, kind of. Uh, I mean, I, I, Gene Siskel wrote in his review that even if you don't know anything about Hollywood, you can instill and you can still enjoy this incredibly tense thriller. And like, <laughs> I think if you even if you're not in Hollywood, like you can enjoy the movie. But I would not call it a tense thriller. Like the whole like every, it's very Robert Altman, right? Like everything is very like casual and kind of like flowing into the next. It's not like you're on the edge of your seat wondering exactly what's going to happen to griffin mill <laughs> and is he going to get away with murder i mean yeah. i was thinking like um maybe just because i've been reading vulture this week has been doing this erotic thrillers thing and i recent i watched deep water recently and i was like this movie is almost an erotic thriller like it has nudity several different sex scenes this murder this kind of like weird noir plot um, but it's kind of like doesn't really matter to the movie. <laughs> Actually, it's at the same time, extremely well filmed sex scene too. One that was kind of notable. Yeah. You know, Greta Scacchi did not want to do nudity, so that entire scene with her and Tim Robbins is just filmed from the neck up, and it's really you know it, it was that was remarked upon at the time, just how how unique that was the way it's, it's filmed. It's a great sex scene. It's like both hotter and like feels more real than like um, like a, almost any other sex scene you know because that's mostly how you experience sex is just having your face jammed against somebody else's face you know should we should we say a little bit about about the plot or yeah. do you want to yeah, just no, go let's from... do it let's do it ricky sorry for interrupting and i oh that's okay that's okay uh so the plot of the movie is griffin mill played by tim robbins is a high-powered executive at a studio in hollywood he's being harassed by a uh, writer that he potentially or excuse me, a writer that he rejected. Uh, he finds out who he thinks that writer is, tracks him down. It's Vincent D'Onofrio. 
the two of them have a uh, fight and Tim Robbins ends up drowning him in a puddle, making it look like a robbery and then going back to work the next day and continuing to produce movies. And basically the idea is that like he killed somebody, but then just goes about his job. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you would like, it's not like, it's not like the murders get worse or he gets a taste for blood and keeps killing. It's that he killed somebody and it was just another day in his life unless he gets caught. <laughs> so I feel like, again, going back to that Siskel quote about like it being a really tense thriller, there's like two scenes with like the cops or with Fred Ward being like, so you killed somebody. Well, we're going to figure this out. And then he like walks out of the room. <laughs> the rest of it is like another movie where he meets a woman. <laughs> he falls in love with this woman. He screws over his enemy at work and makes him look bad uh, so he can get the big job. And that, you know, that's that's pretty much the movie with, with better details in there. I mean, I agree with you because also like it, it like who fucking cares about the, the plot of the movie exactly. But I mean, I do think it's a thriller, Ricky. Do you not think it's a, not a, it's got the music. It's got like red lights. Sometimes there's a murder. There's this device running through the movie that I actually, I, it's not that I never noticed it before. Of course, it's impossible to miss, but I had never appreciated really how on the nose it is every single time, which is the like zooming into the posters in the background during the scene or like after, like it'll say like, you know, uh, you know, well, I don't know. Now I don't kind of, I don't have any fucking examples in my notes, but it'll be like, really dangerous the thing is about to happen you know or it'll be like this guy's a real jerk huh like basically it's completely on the nose commenting on the action but um you really, you really didn't think it was a thriller like you don't you don't find well, it's it, not that i don't it think it's it's not that i don't think it's thrilling i don't think it's i don't think it's trying to do like a, an adrian lynn fatal attraction or no, something you know no. which is like really playing up I mean, I guess you could you could argue that Adrian Lynn kind of created the stylistic elements of that late '80s, early '90s thriller to no avail in his new film. Though, even though I, even so though bad. I liked it, even I mean, though I liked it, watch it's fun to watch, but it's like what a crazy movie, remarkably stupid movie, um, but fun are to the, watch. Are the snails like? Is that like a metaphor for masturbating? Is that <laughs> he like hides in his shell, but then he comes? I don't know, um, but. I don't think that the movie is really all that concerned with elevating well, no. the, the, the fear of, of getting caught. Like it slips back towards it, but I never found myself like worried. I, I could have cared less whether Griffin got caught, but I'm okay with that in a movie. You know, yeah. like I don't need to be like liking or worried about the character. He could have gotten caught and I'm like, okay, I think for it to be better that he doesn't. He would have to just be a more likable character he'd have to be someone that you're invested in a little bit more like you know this could be a morality play where he is caught ultimately and you know and and i don't think that people would necessarily think that that's like an unhappy ending or whatever if anything this movie does have a happy ending but it's really a critique of the happy ending industrial complex in a way it's 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 really dark it's much darker because it's a happy ending it's i think the the thing i would if i had to compare it to any movie it is kind of like crimes and misdemeanors in a way it's mm, like yeah, yeah. you know it's it's sort of like what do we really think of as justice and and how, how is it that like people often do get away with these things and um i would pra- and it's like so is that movie is crimes and misdemeanors a thriller i i, I don't know um 
Yeah, I, I do not think Crimes and Misdemeanors is a thriller. Although, I mean, there are moments where you're worried about the character. I mean, because the, that character is much more sympathetic than Tim Robbins is in, in this movie. Yeah. You know what it you know what it is? I think that your your average thriller, even even like a David Fincher thriller, is operating on a manipulation level that Robert Altman just isn't, I think, capable of operating on. And I don't mean that in like as a, a to I don't mean that as a diss, yo. <laughs> <laughs> Was that your natural no. instinct to say that? Yeah, and I hated myself for it. But like I mean, I d I don't I don't I don't I, I don't think he's like constitutionally capable. Right. Of, of doing that with a movie. I'm sure if he wanted to hand it to an editor and uh, a composer and was like, you know, hey, you know, turn this into a, a Hollywood movie, he could, but I, I, he can't do that. So while it's playing with thriller elements, it is pulling back a little bit anytime it could kind of dive into it head first. Well, the whole movie is really a critique of Hollywood's manipulations, you know? For, yeah. So the movie begins with this elaborate, very showy, like eight minute, uh, one take shot of you know going around different parts of the studio lot hearing these different conversations and we hear some of these hilarious pitches that these screenwriters are giving and, and buck henry himself the screenwriter of the graduate is joan the, tewksbury <laughs> to pitch the graduate too the detail uh, so this is such a famous part of the movie the detail i noticed this time is that when buck henry says it's the graduate too tim robbins goes oh good <laughs> yeah 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 that's the best yeah. he's like he smiles and like claps and says, oh good good oh good, good. oh good <laughs> yeah um but also what like the, yeah that's like a seven and a half minute shot right that's like zooming dolly moving around this studio a lot and like it's not even that it's like one of those things where it's moving through you know most wonders are like moving through a room right and there's choreo- choreographer on that this is going room to room and outside and panning around an incredibly elaborate There's like a shot. car accident in, in it you know but it also screen. it also opens with the slate for the movie right like the player slate is slated at the top of the movie which was the actual slate for that shot it was take 12 on the shot or something like that so let's time travel a little bit back to 1992 <laughs> You're coming out of the 80s. Wow. Movies, movies, movies are primarily known to be kind of chanceless in the 80s. Like they're largely, they're largely bland. And you sit down to watch this movie and it opens with the slate for the film and then goes into a seven minute and 45 second shot. Like how blown away audiences must have been at that time at least cinema going film film buff audiences it's a kind of like return of cinema kind of thing and of course the whole time everybody's talking about movies and multiple times like fred willard is talking about long tracking shots and you know how impressive they are and naming all the other movies that have done them right this guy who actually knows nothing about movies (laughs) the only thing that he knows how to talk about is this one tracking shot so the movie by opening with this incredibly elaborate choreographed tracking shot is actually making fun of the audience member who would only remember that tracking shot and only talk about that Uh and like if you if you listen to the commentary altman says that he's like the reason that we did this tracking shot is because all the film buffs always talk about one like these these single shots so we thought throw one in at the beginning of the movie (laughs) (laughs) 
and you know, there's so many sort of like referential things like that. Like the the slogan for the the studio is like movies now more than ever. That <laughs> like, was so good. a real life slogan that like the MPAA had and was like was touted at the Oscars in the late '80s. Like that that infamous Oscar ceremony. Um, that didn't have a host, but it was opened by Rob Lowe and uh, Snow White and was considered like the biggest disaster until the slap, I guess, in uh, Oscars history. You know, I, I, it's like movies now more than ever, like that messaging was all there completely. So I love Wait, it. Wait, Rob, I don't know about this. Rob Lowe and Snow White as a reference to the Rob Lowe scandal as like a joke? This this was before the scandal, I think. But this was like in the late eighties. Uh, you've got like Army Archer from Variety, like kicking things off. Uh, Rob Lowe does like a dance number uh, with an actress who's playing Snow White because it's all about like you know the history of the movies, you know, being presented in like ten minutes or whatever, and uh, and ultimately bringing it up to the present where it's movies now more than ever and. Uh, no, it's an incredible. Oh my gosh, guys! How do you how do you not know about this? You got to see this. I'm this finding this video on YouTube, and the title of it is "The Eleven Minutes." Oh wait, sorry, it's all frozen. Hold on. The eleven minutes that ruined Hollywood producer Alan Carr's career forever. <laughs> it's wow, really, it truly did. I think Bruce Valance was actually writing for that one, even still. But they they bring out all these. Um, you know, like classic Hollywood stars, you know, who had not been seen in a long time as well. And it's, I think people were kind of shocked as well, just at how kind of, um, you know, infirm a number of them were. So like on every level, it was just a, a catastrophe. But that's the kind of milieu that the player really comes into, which is like, you know, what is the future of the movie business? And we're always talking about the future of movies, but like, you know, the 80s, right, you know, that was the home video boom. And, you know, that's when we're talking about high concept movies and that's when you know and so like this movie is the player is really all about like this very fraught time like where are we going like what can we do as an industry that's meaningful and that's worthwhile and yeah maybe we'll get you know make a lot of money and, and get awards and everything but that you know we don't feel horrible about producing and that's why there's one particular plot line that I adore more than any other. I already referenced it a little bit with my uh, traffic was a bitch line, but um, you know, Richard E. Grant plays this uh, hotshot director who wants to, you know, pitch Tim Robbins character on this very serious kind of Oscar bait movie uh, about capital punishment. And uh, guys, I mean, I think, you know, with Nail and I had just been a few years before this, but this is like one of my favorite Richard E. Grant performances because he's so earnest and so into this pitch. And you know that this is going to be like a total box office bomb, but it's going to have integrity, damn it. And he cries at the end of the pitch, like twi <laughs> twice when he gives yeah. the pitch by the end. He's like, <laughs> they flip the switch. He arrives and he's late. She's dead. Because that's reality. Because happen. people die in reality and he like he keeps like he leans back and like wipes a tear with his knuckle <laughs> and in the one he's in he's in tim robbins office and he's like pulled things off the desk somehow he has a grenade yeah. and like some other weird thing it's so incredible and he's like pitching this with dean stockwell who i love this that like this movie is full of like 
40 or more like cameos of like actors and stars playing themselves. But this is a case where like Dean Stockwell and Richard E. Grant are actually just playing characters or not playing themselves or anything. And, uh, you know, so the, 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 the arc of this is that, you know, it's going to be this very serious movie. We, we think it's going to be, you know, it's going to end on this stirring note of like this innocent person is executed and they find out too late. Um, but of course at the end we see that Hollywood has gotten, a hold of this it, it tested what was it it tested really poorly in canoga park or something <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the line is richard e grant is um uh cynthia stevens's bonnie like turns to him and says what where's the reality you said you said there was going to be reality in this and he goes what about the way it tested the the old ending tested in canoga park we put the new ending we reshot it slapped it on now the numbers are through the roof that's the reality. <laughs> <laughs> and then Dean Stockwell is like, who is this person? Can't we work yeah, yeah. up here? And then Larry, Le- Larry Levy fires her and Dean Stockwell goes, I think that was a great idea. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> it is oh. funny. The Bonnie character, you were saying like how she's such a great performance and it's like such a heartbreaking character. I do feel like like that's always been me and whenever I'm working at some company is like, there's always one idiot who like actually believes in the stuff everybody's doing and doesn't get that everybody else is lying all the, all the time and just trying to like get ahead and they don't actually give a shit. And the one person is like, wait, but I thought movies were art. You know, there's, if you listen to the commentary, uh, Altman talks about the character as an idiot. He's like, she's an idiot, but she's the heart of the film. But she's a bumbling moron. Is basically is like how he describes her. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like how fucking dumb do you have to be? And I'm saying this as again, this is me. You don't understand that everybody else Same. is full of shit and is just trying to in any situation just doing whatever they can to get more money and status. You're like, I thought we all loved making great movies, you know. But Bonnie has my my favorite line in the movie, which I mentioned before we started recording, which is at the end, uh, at the end, or not at the end. It's like in the middle when she finds out that uh, Griffin took this other woman to an awards show. Griffin is her boyfriend, her like kind of boyfriend. And he took this other woman to an awards show. And uh, she comes over and and she says, you took this woman to this show where several hundred of my best friends were going to (laughs) be. And this is, uh, this scene is great too, because it's capped with, um, another one of these totally on the nose poster zoom ins where it says the worst crime of all, <laughs> you know, the writers that are, are pitching in that room when, when Bonnie walks in is, uh, are Michael Tolkien and his brother. Oh, really? Just a little, little, a little Easter egg guys. <laughs> That's really cool. Ricky. There's lots of great Hollywood tidbits in this movie. I feel like you know? oh, so many, this is the ultimate Easter egg movie for Hollywood insiders. If you love Hollywood insiders, this movie's going to drive you batty. LCJ loves this movie. He's a Hollywood insider. He loves this movie. You know, speaking of this kind of bullshit, one of the things that I remembered, and I should be saving this for the, one of the questions, but there's a whole extended sequence where, like, the, there's voiceover from Entertainment Tonight, like, explaining the action and moving the plot forward. And that is both, like, silly and really stupid. But also I was like, oh, yeah, there was a time where Entertainment Tonight, like, kind of was the news, you know? like Was it actually, legit. Yeah, yeah actually mean- was entertainment news, you know? But, yeah, isn't it? It's like Lisa Gibbons actually yeah. giving the the yeah. voice over there. I, I think it's I, I think it's Lisa. Not it's, yeah, they just play the music, and it's Lisa Gibbons. Yeah, yeah, and it's like there was a time when like you know 
Leonard Malton worked for Entertainment Tonight. You know, it's like there were actually it actually did have like some real legitimacy in terms of what is Entertainment Tonight now? Now it's you know clickbait. Uh, you know, what are the Kardashians up to basically as as right. a, as a website? But also, you know, I mean, there's there is still a half hour nightly version of it, which I will say of all the shows, like in the wake of the Oscars and the slap. Entertainment Tonight did have the best reporting, better than Access Hollywood, better than X-Drive. I've watched all of these, so you can tell that. Yeah, it was the thing that was on right after the news, right? You'd watch the 6 o'clock news, and then at 6.30 or 7, Entertainment Tonight came on. And there wasn't an internet, so there was really, you had to either buy a magazine at the grocery store or watch Entertainment Tonight to get any kind of celebrity content or news about the entertainment business, if you were interested in that, you know? It, it was really a show specifically made for moms who had little TVs underneath the cabinet in their kitchen, you know, like the cabinets. And then between the cabinet and the counter, there was like a little TV that showed like the news and entertainment tonight while they were like cooking, cooking dinner. Or like just like having a glass of wine in the kitchen by themselves. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't imagine having a glass of wine by myself and watching entertainment tonight, like how unrelaxing that would probably oh be. God. No, Ricky, it's, it's 1992. It's 1992. <laughs> you've got a pink plastic TV. You're drinking out of a green plastic <laughs> wine glass. You know, it sounds great. Like the afternoon sun is coming in through your French doors. Just going, wow. <gasps> You're just shoveling <laughs> snack wells into your mouth. <laughs> Um. Uh. Yeah. Should we jump wanna, to the questions yeah, and see where that w- yeah, see which sure direction that pulls us in terms of sounds conversation? Great. That sounds great. Oh, you know, actually, you know what? Sorry, I, I do this all the time, but you let's 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 talk. You fucking drew we, me out into this. Sit- you drew me out into the open, and then you gunned me down. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm feeling particularly sadistic this, That's this great. evening. That's My great. apologies. No, I I just because I don't think this is going to be like a favorite part. And I think it's something worth talking about because we just sort of vaguely referenced it, which is this idea that like, yes, it's a cynical portrait of the movie industry in, the, in uh, at this time. But looking back on that now compared to what it feels like the movie industry is now, it looks like, I wouldn't say it looks like heaven, but it, it looks like a much more healthy industry concerning art than, it, than, than, than today's industry. How did you guys feel while, about that while you were watching I mean, that's the thing. Like, it, it, yeah, when Larry Levy is like pulling headlines from the newspaper and, and saying that, you know, you can turn each of these into a movie or whatever, that's cynical and it's stupid. But at the same time, it's at least it's not just, oh, let's just go to this little bit of IP that we have in our portfolio. We own this comic book, so let's adapt that, you know? And yeah, I feel like there was- But like, I, and, but like sorry, outside of the comic book, the other stuff that's getting made is from the newspaper. It's like no, girl, from Plain, girl from Plainville, the fucking Theranos girl. It's like whatever true story we can pull <laughs> from, that's got to be the movie because yeah, no one true. no one sits down to just watch a movie anymore. They've got to like know why they're watching it. And already like, know the characters yeah. and what's going to happen basically. And, you know, but it is funny because I was watching that scene and it's supposed to be so cynical and fucked up, but like we're all New York media guys. Like that's why people that I know have had movies made. It's like, and have a bunch of money. Like that's actually great for, I think, you know, it's when the, this whole thing where they're like paying journalists a huge amount of money to option their stories or their books or whatever to make them into TV shows and movies. 
Like I was like, oh, that's actually good. <laughs> like I, that that's actually like those are the good move things that are being made right now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a funny thing because it it's it feels like, you know, it's an industry that still is capable of being more than just like one or two things. Yeah, and and I think that's that that's something that's been lost since then. You know, I mean, that you could still have even even as cynical and and awful as richard e grant's movie becomes uh you know casting julia roberts and bruce willis for it and everything it's you know it's like it's they're still attempting to make like some kind of drama that's about human emotions that's catered to a little bit more of an adult audience it's not just it's not aimed at 13 year olds well i was saying this before as like a joke but i mean i think it's really telling in this movie that the executives, even the, the most cynical executives, they're shown to understand they have to pay lip service to the idea that movies are an art form and they exist to ennoble the human spirit. And we're, we're supposed to know that they're full of shit. But I, but today, like, you wouldn't even bother to do that. You know, you wouldn't be, like, going around talking about what an important art form the cinema is, you know. And, in fact, it would probably actually be bad for your career if you did that kind of stuff. Well, think about how, I mean even at the Oscars, you know, it was all about, you know, kind of denigrating the idea of movies as an art form this time around. It's like, normally this would be the event where you celebrate those things. And I mean, even like when Kevin Costner came out and did try to do that, that like Jane Campion immediately had like a snarky comment to like, Ooh, that was dramatic. You know? And it's like, I don't know. It's, it's funny. But back then, you know, that was much more the norm that it was like, this is an, an art form that's really worth respecting and worth celebrating, even if it, constantly makes compromises um yeah and 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 now it's just like that that baseline level of respect just doesn't feel like it's there there's another uh portion of the commentary where tim robbins is talking about what movies are now but he's literally doing the commentary in 1992 and he's saying how lucky they were to make this movie because there's no such thing as atmosphere in movie anymore you have to be feeding information and the audience has to know where they're going um and you have to be pulling them the whole time you can't they can't just sit with with something and i was just kind of like like he's saying that in 1992 and i was like man you have like even i because sometimes i feel like even the movies that like are kind of the bones that 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 you know serious film buffs are thrown oftentimes are still kind of like okay this is a talented filmmaker who had to put it in a horror movie like yeah. this is a good horror movie, but this is like a filmmaker who clearly doesn't want to make a horror movie and had to put it in and had to put it in there. Or say like a Western, one. for example. Oh my God. Well, I would love a Western to, for them to put it in a Western. That'd wow. be cool. I mean, like There's the, no, the, the power of the no dog, Westerns. the power of the dog. That's what I'm talking about. True. But that's not even, I wouldn't call that a genre movie by, by any means. Not really a Western. It's like, you know, but this is what I mean. And it's like, I don't think Jane Campion particularly wanted to make a, western but it like why is it a western it kind of has cowboys and stuff i mean i guess it, it's based it's based on a book as is the reason right i, I i'm just gonna edit that out <laughs> no you're not wrong people have been calling it a western and there was the whole conversation contra you know i don't want to say controversy because it wasn't a country where sam um sam elliott no sam, oh, yeah, sam elliott yeah. yeah sam elliott you know, said that said that it wasn't a Western and vaguely homophobic comments. 
that were just like an old man who like was asked a question and didn't know how to shut his mouth for a minute. Dude, I mean, Ricky, as somebody who's done a bunch of interviews like this with celebrities, anytime there's a story like this, can't you just immediately hear the way the person actually said it and be like, this is fucked up, but everybody's pretending this is some kind of scandal because I'm, I, I mean, I listened to the interview in the way he actually said it. Oh yeah. I actually never did. It, it was like, was it bad it was or like, was it not bad? <laughs> I mean, he didn't use any slurs, but he didn't really not. He was still kind of like, uh, he was like, she wants to call this a Western with all these homosexual undertones. Oh, it's not a Western to me. Like something like that. Okay, it was, yeah, it I was take stupid. It back. I take it but back. But he's, he's also like a fucking 80 year old man. Like, I'm sorry. He's not, you know. Yeah. He was upset too that she filmed it in New Zealand and it's supposed to be set in Montana. I did, uh, uh, it actually did bother me when I watched the movie. I mean, maybe just because I've been to New Zealand, but I was like, this doesn't fucking look like America for even a second, you know? It did not look like Montana. That's that's oh. for sure. But, you know, what's uh, what's funny about that is that it seemed like for a while, like after he made those comments, it really then boosted the power of the dog's Oscar chances. Like it actually really helped its awards yeah. narrative. Like now this is like, you know, supporting this movie means that you're making a statement, basically, like, you know, like, against the kinds of, you know, against homophobia or misogyny or whatever, you know, people were saying the same Elliot. And I, I, I guess, you know, this is so interesting that you say that Christian. Cause like, I guess this is the direction that this energy has been channeled in, in Hollywood in recent years. They don't talk anymore about how movies are this important art that are, you know, ennobling your spirit, but they do. Everybody is really invested in like doing something to support the right thing. Like, that's the thing everybody does all the time. That's the new version of it. Which is like, does Power of the Dog do that? I think what's great about yeah. Power of the Dog is that it kind of is is much more uh, complex yes. than doing that. Like, it is about a sociopathic, hostile, closeted gay man who has to be put out of his misery <laughs> by a younger <laughs> gay man who has accepted his sexuality and wants to protect his mother. <laughs> he murders him. So like, I'm not exactly sure the movie is like, you know, thematically maybe in depiction, you could say like, Oh, at least it's doing this, but it's not. The, the thing is like, even a movie, you know, like that, it's like, the complexity that it has though has to be sanded down for the discourse you know yeah, yeah. course, it happens on twitter and and uh and, and it's funny then to consider that all right so that help you know the, the sam elliott comments kind of helped its chances and then jane campion stepped in it yeah, and, yeah. You know, said that comment that was sort of derogatory of the williams sisters but hadn't everybody voted by then by that point like how and then at that no. point, like arguably, really? that, like then hurt the film's chances. Like so, oh, then yeah. it's like it was only ever going to just win for best director, and that was it. And uh, and she didn't. So that. what you're really saying is that no one is actually watching these fucking yeah, movies. No. They're actually just watching the press about them. Exactly. That's what you're. That's 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 what you're really saying. And and to be honest, the thing that she said about the Williams sisters, the Williams sisters laughed. They didn't say anything. They didn't afterwards. They didn't release any statement that was like you know. Oh, that was so cutting. They looked more hurt by Will Smith's Oscar speech than they did by fucking Jane Campion. I mean, I would be so yeah. mad if I were them that like the Will, like the movie about your life winning an Oscar became about Will Smith, like being a complete being lunatic. Being a fucking maniac. Yeah, like 
Well, the whole thing about like taking a, a movie that is somewhat complex and sanding it down to fit a certain narrative, that's exactly what Will Smith did in that speech. Because what's interesting about King Richard is that, you know, yeah, there's there are elements of it being an inspirational sports drama, of course. You know, you're rooting for Venus and Serena, absolutely. But um, he is not just some kind of heroic father figure in that. He is portrayed as being, you know, really... Uh, neurotic and controlling and very hard to live with. And it's the kind, and and what I liked about the way it was portrayed in the movie was that uh, it's the kind of thing that like, you know, Venus and Serena, you know, today endorsing this film could show it to their father, could act like that. It's this great celebration of him. Well, kind of like having sort of an understanding between themselves. It also like captures some things that maybe would go over his head, you know? And what was interesting then about Will Smith's speech was that, he tried to act like that it was just the one dimensional inspirational drama that he was just there protecting his family. And there, and he's this, you know, incredible heroic figure. And it's like, you didn't even play the character that way, but now you're trying to act like that. It's that, that that's what it was to justify what you just did. You're trying to like sand it down yourself to fit this narrative that you're peddling. You're trying to pretend like you're not a cuck who likes to watch your wife fuck your son's (laughs) friends. (laughs) <laughs> like Will Smith just loves his snail shed, okay? <laughs> <laughs> loves that fucking red table. Loves that shit. Oh my god. But um, you know, um it's 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 an interesting thing to think about that because like all of that, you know, all the way that movies are talked about today and the way that they're weaponized and to fit into certain discourses, you know, I mean that that's something that has sprung up, you know, since the player. I mean, that's something that you don't yeah. see in that movie that's not a part of that at all. And it's kind of interesting to think of like the other ways in which this movie is no longer is no longer relevant. And I, I mean, I don't mean that, you know, to diss it in any way, but like there's that moment even where the the one executive is, you know, hearing Richard E. Grant's pitch and is like, well, is there screwing in this? You know, <laughs> like there's sex, right? And I know, that was there, hilarious. There yeah. Was no thought like back in 1992 that like suddenly you know in a decade or two like sex would just be gone from movies but like there would be no sex scenes that like that would just be completely you know a thing of the past you know and at that time it just seemed like that that would not happen didn't you find did you guys christian i don't know if you watched it but chris didn't you find the ben affleck and adormus film to be like fairly chased for what was supposed to be like a I, erotic thriller what i thought was by the standards of right now it was very erotic you know i mm. do agree that it could have gone further and there wasn't Rana armis is you know there's a couple of she's naked like twice and then she's like talking dirty and like giving him a blowjob but you don't see anything which is right it's not that much but i think by today's standards it's fantastic and i'm so happy for people to be trying to make movies like that again. I think there should be more sex in movies for sure. And I know this is, there's, there's, it doesn't get all the way there, but if it's some step along the way, you know, by color of night standards. (laughs) Yeah. Right. This movie, you can see Tim Robbins Dick like a little bit for a second. Right. Ben Affleck, he doesn't show his dick in this one. Right. But he's shown his dick in gone girl and something else. Right. Yeah. 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 Kristen, do you know the other movie his dick is in? I, Check your files. The thing with Gone Girl is that I saw that movie in the theater on the big screen. I still 
don't think that I ever actually saw the <laughs> question. Like I, I you, like, so you left disappointed and were asking all the other film goers if they saw it. I didn't see it. You actually Did you see a stick. I didn't see you it. You went into the projection booth and you were like, can you guys rewind the movie? I know this is, I'm asking a lot here, but <laughs> if they still did those, like if they still did those, um, those trailers that consisted of audience members talking about the movie they just watched, it would, it would cut to you be like, I liked it, but where was his dick? I didn't, I didn't see his dick. And it would keep cutting back to you. You're like, I mean, you read online that his dick is in the movie. I was paying attention. I didn't notice. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is, none of this is meant to be like subtle shade of Ben Affleck. I'm not, I'm not, you know, <laughs> in any way here, but it's just truly, it's these, these moments are so like blink and you miss them that it's, yeah. it's like, I, what's the big deal? What are we talking about? You know, it's 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 a really funny thing about that. You know, um, but they but I mean to go back to Color of Night, that was a blink and you miss it uh, penis and shot. It was such well. a huge when, deal that his penis was in the movie. Huge you know? deal, and it is it's like a deal. split second you can see his penis. What did he get paid for that? <laughs> I think he got paid like a like a you know probably like twenty million dollars for that movie. Jesus but Christ. also that movie has had like a. People are so thirsty for like a solid erotic thriller that that movie has had uh, a resurgence and people are talking about it like it's good. That move that is not a good fucking movie. It doesn't make movie. any fucking sense. It's really crazy all over the place. <laughs> yeah. I saw someone on Twitter today say like, guys, stop stop like nostal- being nostalgic for erotic thrillers. Most of them were bad. Well, and I and like as much as sex should return to movies, most erotic thrillers were pretty see, fucking. I think bad. I was talking about this with Caleb on my other show, and I think this is true, but it's also unfair because it just became like a, basically a porn genre. So, like, yes, you're correct. Most erotic thrillers are bad, but that's because there's like six hundred of them. Like, there are like two good ones. I think you know. One thing, one thing we haven't said about the player yet is: Did you guys notice who one of the production companies was at the top of the movie? No. Oh, I don't think it did. Aaron Spelling's production company <laughs> is one of the production companies behind the player. Oh my god, that's amazing! That's amazing. Was he supportive all along the way, or did he come in at the last minute with a big check right when everybody needed it? I'm sure he came in with a, a big check at the end, or probably had no idea what the movie was. You know. <laughs> Oh yeah, lots of lots of stars. Lots go of ahead. Stars go ahead. Okay, great. It's so funny those questions he wanted to ask. The the, the last one that's, that's like, what have we outgrown? Since then, we've like already identified so many oh ways. God, like basically yeah. everything. Yeah, <laughs> I know we should. Movies now. Aaron Spelling has been deceased oh for a very long time. <laughs> uh, God, I mean, there's so many ways, you know. Um, and I, you know, I haven't been into the halls of a studio, but. I'm willing to imagine, you know, if they are the executives of like a of a very mainstream studio, I don't think you get those photos and posters of old movies. No way, there. no way, not nah, never in a million years. I mean, right? Like it go it goes back like ten years. Emma. Like Iron Man <laughs> one, I would say, is the oldest poster you're gonna see. Right. Maybe you get like a Raiders of the Lost Ark, or Star Wars. Or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, I will say uh, the one studio I know does have some pretty amazing posters believe it or not is lucasfilm in san francisco you can even see some videos online where they have like in one of their big like meeting rooms where they discuss ideas and everything they've got this huge 
poster of Godard's Contempt, and it's like Brigitte Bardot, and it's like so cool. this is that Lucasfilm. They're like discussing like their next like Star Wars projects for Disney Plus or whatever, and they've got Godard's Contempt there. So that kind of, but that kind of makes sense to me though, not because the Star Wars projects on Disney Plus uh, are uh, referential in any way to Godard's Contempt. <laughs> I don't know. I thought I saw a lot because... of that in uh, the, what was it, the Song of Boba Fett? What was that? <laughs> I mean, Lucas, Lucas, Lucas came up as a cinema lover, right? Like, yeah, you know, yeah, he, yeah. he wanted to be before he became George Lucas of star Wars. He kind of wanted to be like an, ex, an avant-garde experimental filmmaker. Right. And like THX sort of went into that. So I, if I were him and I was crafting out some of the most evil poison to like, you know, shut like flush across the, the globe through Disney plus, I would want to be surrounded by things that I like. <laughs> You want to be in the holy place while you're dishing out, um, you know, lies and, and, yeah, and corruption. Yeah, and evil, yeah. You know, uh, it's such it's such a fun movie. And, and and I mean, it's amazing to think that like Altman was basically just a director for hire on this. Like this was, you know, you know, this was not his vision. You know, this was not his script. He was just brought on and then he found all these ways to make it really personal and kind of make it almost sort of like a commentary on how he had had in the eighties, just like all these flops one after the other. And amazingly, this then became sort of his comeback vehicle. Well, he was trying to make shortcuts and that's how he knew Tim Robbins and uh, they couldn't get the money to make shortcuts, but then this was a huge hit. And that's, that, that's how he was able to do that. And if you, when you listen to the, you watch interviews with Michael Tolkien or listen to the commentary, there is a incredible amount of improvisation in the movie as well as ideas that you wouldn't have expected coming together, like through the production, right? Like things that you would think were scripted beforehand or were well thought out were like late stage ideas that were like, Oh, well let's throw that guy's voice from before at the end. Like the guy who's on the phone with um, Tim Robbins in the last, the last scene of the movie, who's, you know, basically saying I was the guy who was sending you these, these threatening, threatening postcards. And now I've got this pitch for a movie called the player. What do you think about it? That's the same guy who was speaking at Vincent D'Onofrio, Vincent D'Onofrio's, Vincent D'Onofrio's character's funeral. Oh, was it? Yeah. So it's supposed to be the same, like the same guy. That's so funny. That's so, but it is interesting. Cause it's like, this is one of the, in one of the MacGuffin thriller aspects of the movie is these postcards, threatening postcards he's getting. And then it is great the way it's handled. You don't even, it's not a reveal at all. You, you, you could totally not know that it's the same person. It doesn't matter. It's just handled in the movie. Like it just doesn't like who fucking cares, <laughs> which is, is great. It's a great way to like resolve this thing, which is, you know, in one sense, the main like suspenseful thing in the movie, which they just are like, I don't know, whatever, who cares? The speech that the guy is giving at Vincent D'Onofrio's character's funeral, the who's a failed screenwriter, and he's a screenwriter giving a speech about his friend who's a, who, who's a failed screenwriter. He, one of the things he says is, um, every time we sell a million dollar script, we back one of those piece of shit producers into a wall. <laughs> <laughs> what? Like, <laughs> pretty sure it's a win-win for both there, buddy. Like, I went for him. <laughs> oh my god um do you want to do the questions now ricky yeah let's do the questions yeah, yeah. every i promise I'll, I'll be i'll be good i promise i don't give a shit dude like to be 
Um, I'm fucking bulletproof, motherfucker. Um, so every episode we ask three questions at the end of the show. Uh, the first is real easy. It's just what was your favorite part of the movie? Um, we always like to ask the guest first, Christian. <laughs> Ooh. Well, I mean, everything with Richard E. Grant. And so, I mean, just the way that that unfolds their their pitch uh is so hilarious but i gotta tell you like i even love i do love like the little bit of the movie that's sort of a like a police procedural where whoopi goldberg and lyle lovett are investigating um tim robbins for the crime and like they know that he did it and uh i i love that i love their their attitude is really kind of offbeat and what not expect from like top characters i think that's interesting i love yeah there's a great well just to say like around i also love that like there's a great scene where um tim robbins is giving some kind of indignant speech about how he's innocent and then they all just start laughing at him and then it's almost like they he they puts an echo on the laugh and it's like a dream or something and they're shooting tim robbins from all these crazy angles while you're just hearing echoing laughter all around him um that's actually my favorite part of the movie. Like out of note, because it's not just that. And apparently the, the scene wasn't written and they all improvised it on the day. Um, but the whole tampon bit is yeah. ho- amazing. Yeah. Like you would just never see that in a movie. Like based, going back to even like the, the, the detective character and how they were written, they weren't written as a black woman. Whoopi Goldberg heard the movie was getting made, called up Robert Altman was like, I want to be in your movie. And he was like, there's no part for you. And he said, and she said, well, I could play the detective. He said, okay, go ahead, come on in. And then on the day that they were shooting that scene, they had nothing written and they all just improvised and came up with it over the course of the day. And apparently Fred Ward was on set too, throwing out ideas and they were all just like messing around. And the tampon thing was Whoopi's idea, which is, a great idea. You would never see that in a movie. I've I've never seen that in a movie. The way she's like spinning it around like a helicopter blade next to her for like the entire scene. <laughs> yeah. And the way that she knows it's gonna like it's gonna rattle this like ex- misogynist executive. You know, he's like not gonna be able to handle it. Yeah. No, I love that too. Yeah. Um, it's it's so unique. I love that. I love you mentioned Fred Ward there. He's I think an MVP in this. Like he doesn't have more than like a couple really great moments, but he is so good as like the head of security for the studio, and like he totally knows that Tim Robbins did this, and he's basically just trying to be like the fixer who's gonna cover it all up and make it go away. And it's so funny. Like I love his performance so much in this that like immediately after. I then sought out a movie that I've, I'd never seen, and, and I'm shocked that I hadn't, but um, Escape from Alcatraz, uh, where he oh, plays shit. Yeah, one of the uh, uh, fellow escapees, uh, you know, alongside Clint Eastwood, and uh, he's great in that as well. Such a, a gr- terrific actor. He's great, and he has, he's playing at such an... This, this character is, is at such a pitch at such an interesting emotional place, because he's like... It's like he's threatening to Tim Robbins, but he's also protecting him, you know? So they have this very uneasy, all the scenes are so strange because he always has like, like higher status and is like saying things that are making Tim Robbins squirm, but then he's also like on his side, sort of, you know? Well, and that's like sort of an old Hollywood throwback in a way, like, you know, back in the studio system there were these fixer types. Right. Certainly. Right. Yeah. Eddie Mannix for MGM, you know, I mean, covered up a lot of stuff. This is like LA confidential kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. Stuff like that. Exactly. You know, like criminal behavior from the stars and 
Do you ever think you'll get to a place in your career, Christian, where somebody else will cover up a murder that you do for you just as like part of the perks package of your job? I, 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 alas, I think those days are, are behind us. I think that, uh, (laughs) I think it'll be the opposite for me. It'll be the way, it'll be like the way that I'll probably feel if, if I, if I get successful enough to leave Twitter, we'll be like, Oh, thank God. Get out of here. Get out of here. (laughs) We can, we can. We can wipe the slate clean of that one. Absolutely. No, I mean, that's the thing. Like, I want to get big enough that, like, I don't ever have to go on Twitter. Again. Like, I don't yeah. have to go <laughs> that way. You know, it was so funny. I love that the New York Times, just like yesterday, Dean Decay issued this go. memorandum that was like, uh, all New York Times staffers should meaningfully reduce the time they spend on Twitter. And it's like, way ahead of you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> it it's was like, interesting, though, because the way it was written made it sound like it had been mandatory up till that point. <laughs> but like, yeah, it kind of, I, I think it kind of has been because they've been, inc- you know, all these brands have been encouraging, you know, develop your own brand and right, you represent yeah. us and all this. And then it's like, actually, what are we getting out of this? <laughs> what is anyone really getting out of this? Oh, my God. Um, just an addiction chris wait did you say your favorite well part yeah i like these things also i mean i i know i already mentioned the um the poster thing but i liked the way along in, in a similar vein that altman uses a lot of the celebrity cameos which we haven't even talked about there's you know so so many celebrity cameos in this movie it's great it's funny and i think there's an interesting tension not tension but it's it's a fun game to play when when the new scene starts like who is getting to play themselves and who is playing a character and like when Whoopi goldberg is introduced for instance it's like ooh, i wonder i wonder is she gonna be Whoopi or is she somebody is she a real person um but the way that not a hundred percent of them but a lot of the uh, cameos are handled is you just hear little snippets Altman-esque snippets of their dialogue but it's like again directly commenting on the action that's happening in the scene which like maybe you could miss but it's also pretty on the nose like one of the early ones is with Burt Reynolds and uh, Tim Robbins is like having this terrible meeting where he's got this terrible news about his job and he's like storming out and then as we like zoom out and Burt comes back into focus he's going he's just hanging on <laughs> and there's like five of those in the movie, you know, I, and I, it's just pretty fun. I think there's also in that same Burt Reynolds scene, Larry Levy comes over and is talking to him and Levy is like apologizing for, uh, something like something that his boss did at his last studio. And he's referencing a real studio boss who was apparently known around town for being a piece of shit. And, and like, so he's going like, Hey, that wasn't me. That wasn't me. That was, my boss and then he walks away and burt reynolds goes asshole <laughs> <laughs> apparently like uh any of the celebs who were playing themselves in the movie were not given dialogue <laughs> they were basically told like what the scene was and who was going to be approaching them and like they could say whatever they want like the scene with malcolm mcdowell he um like griffin tim robbins walks in and malcolm mcdowell walks up to him and says Hey, next time you're gonna talk talk behind my back, why don't you do it to my face? All you assholes are the same. And then he shakes his hand and walks away. And Tim Robbins' character looks extremely rattled from it. <laughs> According to Altman, it was like he told Malcolm McDowell what the scene was, and McDowell was like, "Well, this is how I feel about all of them. They always talk about they all were, they're always nice to your face, and then talk bad behind your back." And Altman's like, "Go ahead, say that." And so that's like what he said on camera. <laughs> like that's what all of them are doing. 
That's great. That's great. I mean, they're all the cameos are fun in this movie. What can you say? It's like such a low hanging fruit thing to talk about. There are a million of them and they're all pretty great. <laughs> they're all pretty great. Like, I love the Harry Belafonte is in this movie. That's it's so strange. And it's really. Oh, yeah. You know, and Larry Levy takes Cher, I think is his date. Yes. History <laughs> yeah. event. And he's having Larry Levy's having some very weird conversation with Jeff Goldblum about where you just hear Jeff Goldblum go, uh, Ghostbusters. <laughs> right <laughs> um, um next question yeah the second question is what is the most 90s thing ricky i mean there's such a long Jesus. list like you i mean me like what well, here are my two ones um and there's so many um they would be that lyle lovett has a part in this movie and that there is a car fax which is <laughs> pretty great but lyle love it remember when he was in all the movies is this was was he going out with julia roberts at this point is that why he's in this movie uh i mean he's in a number of altman movies yeah. i believe yeah he's in ready to he was, yeah he's a, he was an altman favorite for all a right while. well and, i and guess i'm showing my ass he, on this one but i do think he, he was in, in a lot of 90s stuff i don't think i'm wrong about that he's in shortcuts as well well, which was what decade was that made? He's Ricky? the baker. That's right. He's the baker in Shortcuts. He he's the one prank calling Andy McDowell's character because she didn't pick up the cake for her son's birthday. Unbeknownst to Lyle Lovett, baker character, she didn't pick up the cake because her son got hit by a car and died. <laughs> 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 Fucking great movie. Great, 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 yeah. great movie. What about you, Ricky? What's some '90s shit for you? The whole fucking movie, it's like crazy, I, I, right? Like it's every, fucking crazy. Every frame of the movie is bleeding '90s entertainment culture. There's like nudity it in it, like yeah. You know? Every 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 celebrity cameo is like of someone who was specifically famous at this time, um, from Nick Nolte to Malcolm McDowell to John Cusack and Angelica Houston um to burt reynolds you know you know burt reynolds five years later it it would be it wouldn't be like interesting that he appeared in your movie it would be a joke yeah right like it wasn't it was only like five years later that it was a joke when happy gilmore was like must be burt reynolds or some shit um and everyone laughed at that because it's like burt reynolds that guy's you know over the hill um so Every celebrity cameo is so specifically like early, early to mid nineties. The whole idea of the movie industry, like developing into this thing that tells pat stories and can't really be risky, but at the same time is trying to tell dramatic stories is very nineties as well. Yeah. I mean, like it feels like the nineties is like when the experiment was over for like, dramatic films in a way except for indie ones and the experiment was kind of just starting for the blockbuster mm. right like was just starting to be like we'll throw 60 million dollars at this chinese action director uh, to see how many set pieces he can come up with right and then that will just that just becomes what it what we have now um but yeah i, I it feels everything about it it takes on the industry feel very 90s the most universal aspect of it that i think are timeless are just sort of the cynicism of the executives and how that can be any industry any time period they're always going to be kind of like that 
Which yeah. I feel, Christian, I'm sorry, your title is executive editor now, so <laughs> that's not you. Not you, though. I'm you're one of the good ones. offended. This is an attack. <laughs> yeah, you're one of these fucking gross content executives. You know, you're always in meetings, like... I, I am always in meetings. That is, that is, that is true, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's so funny. Like, for me, the most 90s thing about it, God, I mean... I think I got to give a shout out to the menswear in this. Like it's a time where like oh. guys had like the longest, like boot jackets, the longest sports coats. Like they just would go like so far down. Like they, they give such a long waisted look. And it's funny because I was thinking there was something that like was very omnipresent also in a couple years ago, watching the last dance, you know, about, mm-hmm. Oh yeah. About Gigantic yeah, yeah, suits. Yeah. yeah. Like their suits in, the, in, in, in that whole series are horrible. And now admittedly that's like the big and tall store. So it's going to be a, a little Wait, bit more awkward. Can, can I say to agree with you, my favorite outfit in the whole movie is the guy, Ricky, you were saying turns out to be the, uh, the postcard guy at the funeral for Vincent D'Onofrio's character. What he's wearing is a very low scoop neck, gigantic red t-shirt under a like plaid tweed jacket over like acid wash jeans. And he's got long floppy hair with a middle part. And I was like, this is so, so correct. I really love this outfit. I have to say, I was very into the writer fits. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Vincent D'Onofrio looks great. I thought I was like, he looks cool as shit. He looks <laughs> and over yeah, actually over, over COVID, I switched from like relatively tighter jeans to straight up baggy jeans. Oh, like yeah, I wear ba- I wear same. I wear like ridiculous baggy jeans now, and they're like twenty five dollars at the Gap. Like I don't <laughs> give a fuck about my pants. But when I saw Vincent D'Onofrio and the writer at the funeral, and like slightly tighter like kind of tight jeans and like cowboy boots and a blazer i was kind of, i was like i'm uh i'm thinking about going back <laughs> think about going back these, you started dressing like uh, like the writer characters from the player like that awesome. would, that's fucking rules dude yeah that's very good so, so like so ridiculous too especially if i'm actually like working as a writer right, and going to d- meetings going to your screenwriter meetings like, i mean it's with a, a fucking bri- with a briefcase a leather briefcase <laughs> big t-shirt big t-shirt don't you read the trades griffin we're around town larry levy's gonna make important pictures at this he's moving in and you're moving out (laughs) (laughs) um Um, yeah so the last question is always the hard one but you've been here before christian so i think you get it now it's like what's the stuff that we've grown out of (laughs) and we've been talking about this a lot so like it's possibly we've already said all the good answers at this point so like no no pressure (laughs) what haven't we grown out of from this movie at this point i mean it's like yeah it's that's such a it's such a tricky thing because it feels like that (laughs) <laughs> Ricky's Ricky. I'm sorry. Like your hand is up, Ricky. Do you have a hand is up? Yes. We're calling. Okay. So the first, so the, the first thing, I, I, there are so many things, like you said, Christian, that you can, that you can dive into and you can jump on, but I'm going to try to go for what I think is a very subtle thing in the movie, which is that when uh, Richard E. Grant and Dean Stockwell pitch their movie first, the first time they pitch it, they are pitching a story about a black woman on death row and how specifically African-Americans on death are, 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 are largely on death or larger percentage of people on death row are African-Americans. Right. And by the end of the move, by the end of the movie, it's Julia Roberts. This is something though, that is 
you blink and you miss it, right? Like by the time you get to it being Julia Roberts, you may have forgotten that how it was pitched because nobody in the screening room says it was supposed to be a black woman. It was like, these are the numbers in death row. And I think if this were to be made now, that would be hit so much harder. That would not be allowed to be a kind of like a, a subtle blink and you miss it take on 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 casting and race in movies if anything it might be the whole movie might be about a black actress fighting for that role (laughs) like an executive trying to make sure that that role went to the right person you know that i just don't think you would get as like a a throw a throwaway joke anymore and if even if you did it would just be much more blunt oh yeah and yeah it wouldn't be something that was like up to you to decipher it would be very 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 obvious and I think it's a good question, though, to ask, like, what is more interesting or what 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 is better? I, I would argue that the way the player does it is 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 more interesting and more fun to take part in as an audience member because you have to lean in and remember and talk about it versus the way that I think it would be now, which, like I said, would be extremely blunt and it would be delivered to the point of eye roll, most likely. I mean, Ricky, I don't want to hang you out the dry here, but you're, you're, I don't know that you're correct. I think you're off base on this point and I'm sorry to do this to you, my, my brother in Christ, like do it. Yeah. But like, no, the, the first person who's being executed is black. And then he says, cut to an expensive suburb. And then it's a whole story about these rich people. Oh, really? Yes. Yes. And then, because she's supposed to be the wife of the guy who faked his own death. And they're supposed to be rich people. Like that character was never supposed to be black. Like that was, that was supposed, that that's supposed to be the thing that gets you to care about the black people because like, you know, he's making the movie about a rich white person. but I'm so so. Then I'm still right in a way. <laughs> I, I feel like there's no critique I could offer you where that wouldn't be your answer, Ricky. <laughs> right? I'm like I'm like a, a capital stormer. If you like think about you it, tell I'm me that is right. wrong. I'm like actually, you know, I think I might still be right. There's you still could have issues with the vaccination. I'll check a little that's, more uh, of my research. That's an interesting uh, but we'll point. See. But if you think about it, it just kind of proves what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I guess we're just gonna believe what everybody says. Now. <laughs> um, no, I, 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 I guess I, I, I forgot, or I, I didn't, I didn't hear that whole thing. But Ricky, I, I already asked think... you if you were on ketamine while you watched this movie. Is that? And were you on ketamine <laughs> while you're watching this movie? I still I haven't done where, ketamine. Do you know I score Everybody, some? all the hot girls are doing ketamine now. I guess I still have never done it. Again, it's coming. It's back. Uh, yeah, it's back in a big way. Oh yeah. Oh, I thought it went away. Um, anyway. uh, maybe I'm. Oh my God! Maybe it did go away, and I don't even know. Maybe you're. Oh no! Yeah. What is what is this? 2017, Chris? Oh, come on! God. Didn't you see White Lotus? I mean, come on. Oh right, but anyway, I I do think that the way that I felt the joke still lands. Well, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? 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 Uh huh. Huh? Huh? Yeah. yeah. Okay. We can just move on. Rick, did, did you? No, Christian's about to back me up. Let him back yeah, me no, up. I, the only difference, the only slight tweak to that, I would say, is that I would say that this is where the, this is something that we have not outgrown, and that this is something where this movie is still really relevant. Is that this is a, this is Altman and Tolkien critiquing, you know, the idea of exploring a societal issue uh, through a white lens. Ultimately, we're supposed to realize that 
mass incarceration and capital punishment is bad when it's when it um, happens to a white person when it's happening to black people because we've also seen it happen to a white person because we felt those emotions therefore let's try to transfer those to the black people to whom it's disproportionately happening as well. And, and I feel like that's the kind of narrative, that's the kind of discussion that would kind of be happening today that like, how dare you make a movie that's like centering the white experience first and foremost, you know, when exploring this issue, that's really more, you know, about African-Americans. And, and so for me, that yeah. actually we have not outgrown. I feel like that this is kind of like playing into a discourse that, you know, would still it would it would be the discourse around that today would be every bit as negative as the way that it's portrayed in this movie but there would be discourse around it yes right there would be like more prevalent discourse around it i also would say that it's it i i think that hollywood or entertainment at the very least in some ways has outgrown doing that because of the discourse. Like they don't, I mean, I think they still probably do a lot of the time, but it's a little bit harder to get away with and audience demographics have changed and they have to adopt, adapt, adapt to that. I will say that like the, the dominant culture, I don't know if I want to necessarily put it that way, but Still hasn't changed in regards to just sort of how they react to stories in general, not necessarily the entertainment industry. I think of Ukrainian refugees versus right. like suddenly Bangladeshi that's really refugees. Yeah. yeah, suddenly we care, right? Like, and wait, we'll let all wait, of them in. Wait, they're real people? Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, uh, yeah. So like it yeah. still exists in the real world, yeah. that, 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 that racism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wait, it does? It still exists, guys. <laughs> Still exist, oh but the entertainment industry, I will say, for as 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 poorly as they're often doing it, and as bluntly and as cynically as they are doing it, they are trying to make rant, like yeah. you know course corrections there. Yeah, and, and in that regard, you know, as you know, kind of critical as as one can be, and and I perhaps I've even been in this podcast about, about the discourse. That's actually one thing where I think like the discourse has actually helped to improve things and, and actually has, you know, resulted in some better storytelling. Like, you know, w- what we're seeing in the player with this kind of centering of like a white person's story to make a larger point about African-Americans, like that's the kind of thing like that would lead ultimately to crash, you know, the Paul Haggis movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, best picture winner. Best picture winner. Yeah, exactly. So you're saying it's positive because it created such a classic of cinema? <laughs> no, no, it's it's that you know, Crash is like that could never even be made now. Like that 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 particular like you know through a white lens vision of race relations could not be made now. And actually, I think that's a very good thing. Obviously, I mean, we all agree that Crash is a terrible movie. So you know, in that regard, there has there has been a change. I I do think. Yeah, I I would agree. And when people say like uh you know the the movies aren't aren't good because of it or like you know the movies changing uh to to these different lenses is making them that good i would 
I would argue, like, have movies ever in, been good as a whole? <laughs> There's been a few good movies every year. Yeah. They managed <laughs> like, to make a like, couple uh, good ones, and the rest of them are pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah, like, I don't know what you're... Th- I don't know, like, what you're looking back on that makes you think every mainstream movie that... Like, you know, I, I, some someone's going to, like, look at... I'm trying to think of a movie that came out that had like black women centered on it in it or something that was like a fantasy, maybe like that Ava DuVernay fantasy movie, right? With oh, Oprah. Uh, a wrinkle in time. Wrinkle in time. Right. Yeah. And for people to like, have been like, Oh, this is bad because they're like centering this. It's like, no, it's just bad. It's just bad because <laughs> yeah. most Hollywood movies are bad. It's okay. It's just like, like a movie has, for kids and it's not very good. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, that's, they make a lot of those. <laughs> have you ever seen the maze runner movies? You know, like, yeah, I mean, for me, like, bros, um, I mean, we've basically said everything that I think we've grown out of. It's the, like, um, you know, the way that the movie industry is portrayed in this as still being open to new original ideas. I mean, I know I keep talking about the newspaper scene, but, like, to your, like, those are, each each one of those cynical new movie ideas is an, an original idea starring characters people have no familiarity with, you know, which is, like, pretty unusual right now in, in Hollywood. Um, and I just think the general way the industry in this seems like to at least have to pretend to be interested in making good movies is, uh, you know, you don't see that really, <laughs> especially not at the like major, major studio level that this movie is supposed to be about. Like, uh, you know, a hundred percent, obviously, if this movie was set today, um, Larry Levy and all of them would be making like Marvel movies and, you know, other kinds of superhero movies and TV shows and making TikToks and like, you know they wouldn't be like giving speeches about the importance of preser- preserving film history, you know, like, right. They wouldn't say movies now more than ever. They would say content now more than ever. They'd say like, we want to engage our audiences across all platforms, you know, Christian, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to have you. Oh, on and again. where really can people, where, where can people find you? What's your, uh, you yeah, got- well, you can find me, uh, on IndieWire, certainly IndieWire.com. But, uh, my t- personal Twitter handle is at, ct blavelt that's c-t-b-l-a-u-v-e-l-t and uh yeah i i'm on instagram as well just my name at christian blavelt uh but seriously guys i love talking about this movie so much this was like it, it was like fate you know i just saw it a few weeks ago again <laughs> I, hadn't, I hadn't seen it in years and so to be able to then talk about it with you was so much fun i'm so glad i'm so glad you you could it was great it was super great Uh, (laughs) thank you so much good night